and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Sam. And I'm Caitlin. This episode, I am taking us way, way back again. I haven't done it for a while, but then I feel like I say that every single time I do it. So anyway, today is about Amelia Elizabeth Dyer, also known as the Reading Baby Farmer. Caitlin, have you heard of this one? Um, no, it doesn't ring a bell, but you never know. You might start it and I might be like, oh yeah, but currently no. No, that is fair because it was over a hundred years ago. Um, so bear with me. Now, Amelia Dyer was born in 1838 and she was the most prolific baby farmer, well, baby farm murderer of Victorian England. So, unlike many of her generation, you know, we're all the way back, Amelia was not the product of poverty. She was born in the youngest of five. So she had three brothers, Thomas, James and William, and a sister, Anne. And she was born in the small village of Pyle Marsh, which is just east of Bristol. The daughter um, of a master shoemaker, her dad was called Samuel Holby, and her mother, Sarah, who was, you know, a housewife at the time. She also... I was going to say, see, when you said like master shoemaker house, I was like, what other jobs was there? To be honest, like I feel like every case you do that's this long, someone's involved in shoemaking. Well, you could be a candlestick maker, a butcher, <laughs> something else you could make. I don't know. But shoemaker was the, the real deal, you know. Now, and obviously, like I said, her mum was a housewife at the time because, you know, she probably wasn't allowed a job. But Amelia did learn to read and write and she um, developed a love of literature and poetry as well. Now we're in the 1800s so that is a big thing. However her somewhat privileged childhood was kind of marred by the mental illness of her mother which was caused by typhus. So back in the day you know that was a big disease and Amelia also witnessed her mum's violent fits because that was what was caused by it and then she had to care for her until she died which she died of a fit in 1848. Now researchers later commented that this probably could have had an effect on Amelia of what she had seen and it also taught Amelia about the signs exhibited of those who would appear that they weren't fully in a good mental state so it could have been helpful to her so just keep a thought of that in your head now after her mother's death Amelia lived with an aunt in Bristol for a while before serving an apprenticeship as a corset maker now her father died in 1859 and her eldest brother Thomas inherited the family shoe business now in 1861 at the age of 24 Amelia became permanently estranged from at least one of her brothers and she moved into lodgings in Trinity Street, still based in Bristol. There she married George Thomas. George was 59 and they both lied about their ages on the marriage certificate to reduce the age gap because George was 59 and she was 24. So he deducted 11 years from his age and Amelia added six years to her age. Now, for a couple of years after marrying George, she trained as a nurse, which was quite a gruelling job in the Victorian times because, you know, there were 
well, I don't know how much you know about Victorian history. I clearly don't know tons, but I mean, there was illness after illness and they were also kind of, I'd say that was the time where they were inventing or investigating and doing all these things of, oh, we could try this medicine, we could try that. Yeah, I think whenever you kind of hear about the Victorian era, it wasn't a very great time for health. No, not at all. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, but again, it was a respectable occupation, as it still is, and it also enabled her to acquire quite a lot of useful skills. Now, she also had contact with a midwife called Ellen Dane, and she learnt of an easier way to earn a living, using her own home to provide lodgings for young women who had conceived illegitimately, because obviously 1800s, very bad, and then farming off the babies for adoption, or allowing them to die of neglect and malnutrition. Now, but she learned all this from her colleague Ellen Dane, who then, Ellen, had to run away to the USA after shortly meeting Amelia to escape the attention of the authorities. Yet that didn't think click up right. a light switch on Amelia to think, oh, is this going to be wrong? Do I need to run away? So unmarried mothers in Victorian England and probably all around the world often struggled to gain an income because there was a law put put together in 1834 and that removed any financial obligation of the fathers of illegitimate children whilst bringing up their children in a society. That's mad. Yeah, so this law um, took away the financial obligation of the father, but then in the society, single parenthood and obviously illegitimate children were completely like you may as well just had a black mark against your name. So, not great. This led to the practice of baby farming, in which individuals acted as adoption or fostering agents in return for regular payments or a single upfront fee from the baby's mothers. Now, many businesses were set up to take in these young women and care for them until they gave birth. The mothers subsequently left their unwanted babies to be looked after as they were kind of called nurse children. Now, I've spoken to this, I've done one episode on this before, I think, at the very beginning. So it was a big thing back in the Victorian days. And again, it's like one of those things, I guess the laws just kind of made these things happen. as like a back alley, you know, sort of things that had to come. Now, the predicament of the parents involved was often exploited for financial gain, which you know shock horror so if a baby had well-off parents who were just simply anxious to keep the birth secret the single fee might have been as much as 80 pounds which back then was a ton of money 50 pounds might be negotiated though if the father of the child wanted to hush his involvement which that's an extra 50 quid however it was more common in for these expectant young women you know they weren't well off so they were from workhouses or they were impoverished so they would be charged about five pounds now carers resorted to starving the farmed out babies to save money and to even quicken the death noisy or or demanding babies could be sedated with easily available alcohol or opiates now there was a thing called godfrey's cordial known colloquially as mother's friend and it was a syrup containing opium so it wasn't you know your calpel and that was a popular choice but there was also several other similar you know um 
syrups and other things that were put together, all kind of containing opium to use. Now, many children died as a result of such of these practices, and opiums killed far more infants through starvation than directly through an overdose of opium. So um, an investigator noted how children kept in a state of continued narcoticism will be thereby disinclined for food and be but imperfectly nourished. So they didn't die of an overdose, but the opium didn't make you hungry. Now, death from severe malnutrition would result, but the coroner was likely to record the death as debility from birth or lack of breast milk or simply starvation. Mothers who chose to reclaim or simply check on the welfare of their children could often encounter difficulties, but some would simply be too frightened or ashamed to tell the police about any suspected wrongdoing, because clearly they would get in deep shit for doing so. Now, even the authorities often had problems uh, tracing any children that were reported missing. This was the world opened up to her by the now departed Ellen Danes. So all of this for Amelia was brought to by Ellen. Now Amelia had to leave nursing with the birth of her daughter Ellen Thomas because we're in 1869 and I think you know if a woman had a kid you're then you're right that's you 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 don't need to do your job anymore. You're done. Yeah pretty much. Now also in 1869 the George Thomas he's who's now elderly uh, who is Amelia's husband he died. And Amelia, she now needs an income. So she was apparently keen to make money from baby farming. And alongside taking in expectant women, she would advertise to nurse and adopt a baby in return for a substantial one-off payment and adequate clothing for the child. So you had to pay her and give her clothing for this child. In her advertisements and meetings with clients, she assured them that she was respectable, married, and that she would provide a safe and loving home for the child. At some point in her baby farming career, Amelia was prepared to forego the expense and inconvenience of letting the children die through neglect and starvation. So soon after the receipt of each child, she just murdered them, which allowed her to pocket most of or all of the entire fee because she didn't need to spend that on the kid. For some time, Amelia eluded the resulting interest of police. She was eventually caught, though, in 1879 after a doctor was suspicious about the number of child deaths he had been called to certify in her care. However, instead of being convicted of murder or manslaughter, she was sentenced to six months hard labour for neglect. They said this before, and I never understand, sorry, when the doctor, they keep going to like the same doctor to pronounce death. And I'm like, is that not like step one? Like you would go somewhere different. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think you'd either go somewhere different or it's like, well, if you're doing all of this, why are you even reporting them dead? Like, why are you getting a death certificate? Get rid of them. No? Samantha. That's brutal. Don't say you didn't think it. No, I didn't think it. That's why I mentioned the bloody doctor. <laughs> well, uh, okay. Cool. Jesus, look, tell me your dad tried to kill your cat without telling me your dad tried to kill your cat. <laughs> You're from a family of murderers. Moving on. Okay, now this experience, though, um, of the hard labour, which, you know, back then it was hard labour. It wasn't a wee bit of community service picking up litter. 
It apparently destroyed her mentally, though others around her did express that she actually had quite a lenient sentence when compared to those handed out for lesser crimes at that time, so she really could just be having it on. Now, upon release, she attempted to resume her nursing career. She had spells in mental hospitals, though, due to her alleged mental instability and suicidal tendencies. These always, though, coincided with times when it was convenient for her to disappear. Being a former asylum nurse, which, you know, back in the 1800s, it was rough. Amelia knew how to behave to ensure a relatively comfortable experience. I don't know how comfortable an asylum could be, but she knew how to act. So she appeared to have begun abusing alcohol and opium-based products as well. Early in her killing career, it's some say, you know, possibly due to her mental instability or because of what she was actually doing. But then they also say that this mental stuff could have been related to her substance abuse. Now, in 1890, she cared for the illegitimate, sorry, illegitimate baby of a governess. And when she returned to visit the child, the governess was immediately suspicious and stripped the baby to see if a birthmark was present on one of its hips. There was no birthmark and prolonged suspicions by the authorities led to Amelia having or faking a breakdown because this happened. Clearly, this is not this lady's child. Something has happened. So at one point, um, Amelia drank two bottles of laudanum in a serious suicide attempt. However, her long-term abuse had built up her tolerance to opium, so she wow. survived. This is what I was meaning about the death certificate, because that's the thing. The lady could turn up and she could go, unfortunately, she's passed away, here's a death certificate. Oh, yeah. I guess that would make sense. I never thought of it like that. I was just being awful. Anyway. Inevitably, though, um, because her suicide attempt failed and after having her breakdown, she returned to baby farming and also just downright murder. Now, Dyer realised that, finally, you know what I was saying, she realised her mistakes of involving doctors to issue death certificates and so she began disposing of the bodies herself. You know, maybe it's just because I read this. Maybe I'm not that awful a person. Maybe I just knew what was coming. Okay. Now, right. Okay. No bother. (laughs) The nature and extent of her activities again prompted undesirable attention. She was alert to the attentions of police and of parents seeking to reclaim their children. She and her family frequently relocated to different towns and cities to escape suspicion and regain being unknown and to acquire new business. Now, over the years, she had used tons and tons of aliases. In 1893, Dyer was discharged from her final committal at Wells Mental Asylum. Now, unlike previous breakdowns, this had been a most disagreeable experience because she didn't like the way she was being treated at the place, and so she never entered another asylum. Two years later, she moved to Caversham in Berkshire, accompanied by an unsuspecting associate, Jane Smith, 
known as Granny, whom Amelia had recruited from a brief spell in a workhouse, and Amelia's daughter and son-in-law, Mary Ann, who's known as Polly, and Arthur Palmer also joined them. This was followed to by a move to Kensington Road in Reading, Berkshire later the same year. So this is, you know, two moves in one year already. Now, Smith was, who's Granny, was persuaded by Amelia to be referred to as mother in front of innocent women handing over their children. Now, this was an effort to present a caring mother-daughter image for them both. Now, in January 1896, Evelina Marmon, who was a popular 25-year-old barmaid, gave birth to an illegitimate daughter, Doris, in a boarding house in Cheltenham. She quickly sought offers of adoption and she placed an advertisement in the miscellaneous section of the Bristol Times and Mirror newspaper. And it just simply read, wanted respectable women to take young child. Now, Marmon intended to go back to work and hope to eventually reclaim her child once she, you know, she was up and running again. Coincidentally, though, next to her own advertisement was one reading, married couple with no family would adopt healthy child, nice country home, terms £10. Now, just a side note, it always still astonishes me how you could just do all this in newspapers, like, you know, communicate with people or, you know, find a husband, find a wife, do this, do that. It was all in the newspaper. I think we've spoken about that before. Yeah, the ones that it's like you can just put like, I'm single. And yeah, and then someone, and someone like, back. hello. <laughs> yeah, it's just mental. I love um, that. But so what happened was Evelina responded to a Mrs. Harding. And we'll put that in quotes. And a few days later, she received a, a reply from Mrs. Harding, who was actually called Amelia Dyer. And she was from Oxford, in um, Oxford Road, sorry, in Reading. And she wrote that I would be glad to have a dear little baby girl, one I could bring up and call my own. We are plain, homely people in fairly good circumstances. I don't want a child for money's sake, but for company and home comfort. Myself and my husband are dearly fond of children. I have no child of my own. A child with me will have a good home and a mother's love. So obviously on that note, Evelina wanted to give it to Mrs Harding. And she also wanted to pay a more affordable weekly fee for the care of her daughter. But Mrs Harding insisted on being given the one-off payment in advance. So Evelina, she was obviously in desperate situations so she reluctantly agreed to pay the £10 and a week later Mrs Harding arrived in Cheltenham. Now Evelina was apparently surprised by Mrs Harding but Amelia Dyer's advanced age and stocky appearance but Amelia seemed affectionate towards Doris. Evelina handed over her daughter a cardboard box of clothes and the £10. Still distressed at having to give up the care for her daughter, Evelina accompanied um, Amelia to Cheltenham train station and then on to Gloucester. She returned to her lodgings, an absolutely broken woman. Now, a few days later, she received a letter from Mrs Harding saying all was well. So Evelina wrote back, but received no reply. Amelia did not travel to Reading, as she had told Evelina. She went instead to 76 Mayo Road, Williston in London, where her 23-year-old daughter Polly was staying. 
There, Amelia quickly found some white edging tape used in dressmaking, wound it twice around the baby's neck and tied a knot. Death would have not have been immediate, but Amelia later said that she, I used to like to watch them with the tape around their neck, but it was soon all over with them. Now, both women allegedly... That's weird. Yeah. It's worrying and I don't know how that would even come about. Now, could it have been down to having to watch her mother die or things like that? Was she clinically insane? You just don't know. Now, both women allegedly helped to wrap the body in a napkin and they kept some of the clothes Evelina had packed and the rest were given to the pawnbroker. Now, Amelia paid the rent to the landlady and gave her a pair of child's boots as a present for her little girl. The following day, on the 1st of April 1896, another child named Harry Simmons was taken to Mayo Road. However, with no spare white edging tape available, the length around Doris's corpse was removed and used to strangle the 13-month-old boy. Now, on the 2nd of April, both bodies were stacked into a carpet bag, along with bricks for added weight. She then headed for Reading. At a secluded spot she knew well, near a weir at Caversham Lock, she forced the carpet bag through railings into the River Thames. Now, unknown to Amelia, on the 30th of March, 1896, a package was retrieved from the Thames at Reading by a bargeman. It contained the body of a baby girl, later identified as Helena Fry. In the small detective force available um, at the time, headed by Chief Constable George Tuesley and Detective Constable Anderson, they made a crucial breakthrough. As well as finding a label from Temple Mead Station in Bristol, he used microscopic analysis of the wrapping paper and deciphered a family legible name. Mrs. Thomas, and also an address. This evidence was enough to lead police to Amelia, but they still had no strong evidence to connect her directly with a serious crime. Additional ev evidence they got from witnesses and information obtained from Bristol Police only served to increase their concerns, and DC Anderson um, placed Amelia's home under surveillance. Subsequent intelligence suggested that Amelia would abscond if she became at all suspicious, so they tried to keep it on the down low. The officers decided to use a young woman as a decoy, hoping she would be able to secure a meeting with Dyer to discuss her services. This may have been designed to help the detectives either positively link Amelia to the business, or it may have just been given them a reliable opportunity to arrest her right there. Now, it transpired that Amelia was expecting her new client, who was the decoy, to call, but instead she found detectives waiting on her doorstep. On the 3rd of April, which in 19, um, 1896, sorry, it was Good Friday, police raided her home. They were apparently struck by the stench of human decomposition, although no body remains were found. There was, however, plenty of other related evidence, including white edging tape, telegrams regarding adoption arrangements, pawn tickets for children's clothing, receipts for advertisements and letters from mothers inquiring about the well-being of their children. 
The police calculated that in the previous few months alone, at least 20 children had been placed in the care of a Mrs Thomas, now revealed to be Amelia Dyer. It also appeared that she was about to move home again, this time to Somerset. The rate of murder has led to some estimates that Amelia may, over the course of decades, have killed over 400 babies and children, making her one of the most prolific murderers ever, and being a woman, one of the most prolific women murderers ever. Now, Helena Fry, the baby removed from the River Thames on the 30th of March, had been handed over to Amelia at Templemead Station on the 5th of March. That same evening, she arrived home carrying only a brown paper parcel. She hid the package in the house, but after three weeks, the odour of decomposition prompted her to dump the dead body in the river. And as it wasn't weighted adequately enough, it had been easily spotted. Now, Amelia Dyer was arrested on the 4th of April and charged with murder. Her son-in-law, Arthur Palmer, was also charged as an accessory. Now, during April, the Thames was dragged and six more bodies were discovered, including Doris Marmon and Harry Simmons, who were the last victims. Now, the Thames being dragged and only six bodies being found, I'm very surprised because anything could be found in the Thames. Now, Each baby had been strangled with white tape, which, as she later told the police, was how you could tell it was one of nine. Eleven days after handing her daughter to Dyer, Evelina Marmon, whose name had emerged in items kept by Amelia, identified her daughter's remains. Now, at the inquest into the deaths in early May, no evidence was found that Mary Ann, known as Polly, or Arthur Palmer had acted as Amelia's accomplices. Arthur Palmer was discharged at at the result of a confession written by Amelia. In jail, she wrote, Sir, will you kindly grant me the favour of presenting this to the magistrates on Saturday the 18th instant? I have made this statement out, for I may not have the opportunity that I must relieve my mind. I do not know. I feel my days are numbered on this earth. But I do feel it is an awful thing drawing innocent people into trouble I do know I shall have to answer before my maker in heaven for the awful crimes I have committed. But as God Almighty is my judge in heaven and on earth, neither my daughter, Mary Ann Palmer, nor her husband, Alfred Ernest Palmer, I do most solemnly declare neither of them had anything at all to do with it. They never knew I contemplated doing such a wicked thing until it was too late. I am speaking the truth and nothing but the truth, and I hope to be forgiven. I myself and I alone must stand before my maker in heaven to give an answer for all witness my hand, Amelia Dyer. On the 22nd of May 1896, Amelia appeared at the Old Bailey and pleaded guilty to one murder, that of Doris Marmon. Her family and associates testified at her trial that they had been growing suspicious and uneasy about her activities and it emerged that Dyer had narrowly escaped discovery on several occasions. So all these people are being suspicious and she's doing all this under their nose, yet they didn't see a thing. Now, evidence from a man who had seen and spoken to Amelia when she had disposed of the two bodies at Caversham also provided significant 
evidence to say that this is what had happened. Now, her daughter as well had given graphic evidence that ensured Amelia Dyer's conviction. So all these people are now going against her, but possibly helped her? I do not know. The only defence Amelia offered was insanity. She had been twice committed to in asylums in Bristol. However, the prosecution did argue, and successfully at that, that her exhibitions of mental instability had been a ploy to avoid suspicion. Both committals were said to have coincided with times when Dyer was concerned her crimes might have been exposed. And then that takes us all the way back to her seeing the way her mother acted. And did that yeah, yeah. I get what she means though about like um when she said like those people weren't involved. We're never gonna know that. No. Like not she at all. is a hundred percent gonna be like, Yeah, it was just me because like if she knows she's going down anyway, why would you then send your daughter down? Do you know what I mean? There's not really a need for it. So she could easily just say, like, yeah, it was all me, sorry. And they're just gonna be like, Okay. Yeah, no, I agree. Why drag others along with you if you're going to just take the blame anyway? We always speak about this, being like, if we accidentally committed murder, we wouldn't. But if we did, the other would help, but we wouldn't go, like, blame the other for it. Yeah. Like, but I would help you, but if you then got caught, I'd be like, what? Yeah, I'd be like, you'd be like, I'm out, I'm out now. I'd be like, what? <laughs> I never knew that she did that. I am <laughs> stunned as I'm, like, getting rid of all the body stuff. Anyway, <laughs> that will never happen. Do not worry. Um, but yes, yeah, so that's what has happened. And it took the jury only four and a half minutes to find her guilty. In her three weeks in the cell... Shut up! Sorry. How? <laughs> Sorry, I've heard of quick juries, and I know this was back in the, the days, but how, how can you make a decision that time? I, I have no Did idea. Anyone Did they all just go like, guilty, yeah? And everyone just went, yeah, yeah. And it was like, okay, done. Yeah, signed a bit of paper and was like, that's us. That is but, honestly hilarious. You hear juries take, like, bloody weeks. This jury are like, nah, done. Yeah, I just want to get out of here. But I feel as well, though, whenever we do an old, or me mostly, do a very old crime, the jury is quick. They are just, like, 10 minutes, 5 minutes, 20 minutes. I think it's know? because back then, though, like, without being horrible, what evidence did they have? Yeah. You don't have your DNA to go through. You don't have, like, your CCTV to go through. You probably don't really have any witnesses. You've got a few of the mothers, but actually, if you look at cases that, like, lasted for ages, like, they obviously then from like, O.J. Simpson trial, that never bloody ended. But it's because there was so much they to had go to go through. through. Whereas in crimes like this, like, there probably wasn't much to go through at that time. Yeah, and it was all kind of just, in my opinion, right, you're guilty, that's us. <laughs> okay, moving on. Um, but yeah, so she spent, after her, her being um, found guilty, she spent three weeks in the cell and she filed five exercise books with her last true and only confession. So visited the night before her execution by the chaplain, which was, you know, the process of it all, she was asked if she had anything to confess. So she offered him her exercise books saying, isn't this enough? Now, curiously, though, she was actually subpoenaed to appear as a witness in Polly's trial for murder. Now, this is her daughter. Now, she was set for a week after her own execution date. However, so what's Polly getting tried for? Sorry, murder. Now, yes. Now, Who? this for these children as well. Now, uh, uh -huh. she did write this confession. Obviously, Amelia wrote this confession and 
the husband or her son-in-law, should I say, was set free. But Polly is still in jail. But why? Now, because she's also getting the blame for it. Now, it was her murder trial, though, was set for a week after Amelia had been set an execution date. Now, however, it was also ruled that Amelia was already legally dead once sentenced and that therefore her evidence would be inadmissible. Now, no, I'm sorry. What? Yes. That that's not funny, but like imagine you just get like the death penalty and it's like, right, okay, your date's in a use time, so we'll just do the death certificate now. Yeah, you're like, already dead, you mean nothing. That's mental. Like she just turns up at the trial and they're like, he is the deceased. <laughs> yeah. Now her execution as well was not delayed, you know, even though she was like, my daughter's up for murder in a week's time. No, no, they did not delay this. However, on the eve of her execution, Amelia was told that the charges against Polly had been dropped. So, you know, it was all clear. Nothing was going to happen to Polly. Now, she was, I don't know as well if this was obviously maybe a scare tactic or to make her last week absolutely hellish. Who knows? But Amelia Dyer was hanged by James Billington at Newgate Prison on the Wednesday, the 10th of June, 1896. As always, you're asked beforehand if you have anything to say, any final words. And her final words, she just said, I have nothing to say. And then she was hung at 9am. Um, but that is the story of Amelia Dyer, who was a baby farmer, stroke murderer, um, which was very kind of popular in Victorian England or the UK. Do you think she was like insane? Like, I think especially the fact that she's like, I don't have anything to say. It doesn't seem to be like, yeah, that actually wasn't great what I was up to. She just seems quite like chill about it is the right word but she doesn't seem like you know you kind of thought maybe once she got to like the trial and maybe like was kind of okay it's all out in the open that people know what I did do you think she'd maybe then be like actually this was really bad like yeah sorry I'm about sorry. That. whereas the fact she's just yeah I think that's what I always find interesting like I know sorry is not enough like sorry I killed your child sorry but I always find it really interesting when like people that commit murder just don't apologize I'm like is that not like the bare minimum you could do yeah no I agree and I think maybe she'd obviously seen a lot as a kid and then that would have put maybe something in her head but then I'm guessing by the time like they've said there's a possibility that she killed 400 people I think by the time you've got to a certain number you're numb to the world and you become but your mental and state I think if that gone. was now if that was now she wouldn't have well obviously she wouldn't be hung but she probably wouldn't even go to jail either that would 100% be like insanity like yeah. she would be unwell and that would be it it would just be like yep yeah, she's not fit to stand trial she's obviously mentally insane and that would be like the conversation over basically but I think because it was back then that wasn't even considered but I'm like she was obviously something not right there to kill that many people I don't think we've ever done a case that that many people have been killed no. Well, Harold Shipman, but he didn't even make that number. Well, exactly. So I'm just like, that's mental that that, but obviously it is, as you said, like back in those days, that wasn't even like considered. Like, we'll just look at the jury. <laughs> the jury didn't chat enough to even get no. to the mental health bit. They were like, done, right, Joe. But 
yeah, I think if that was, yeah, and obviously what she saw her mum go through was bad. That's a shame. But it doesn't mean you can then go on to kill hundreds of children with no remorse. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely.